get me out of here, you can have your key back. This is where I start to have fun. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and it feels so good to say it again. Guys, I missed you. I'm sorry it took so long. As I'm recording this, it's uh, it's uh, Thanksgiving Eve, so for those of you who celebrate Thanksgiving, um, those of you who don't... Um, doesn't matter. Just uh, w- w- whatever you are doing at this time of year, I just want to say I am thankful for all of my listeners. I'm, I'm thankful for all the support throughout the years. I'm thankful that I had some time to actually sit down and record an episode. Um, so for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, I'm your host of the Stephen King cast, uh, the, a Stephen King podcast that's been running for four plus years now. I can't believe it's been that long in which I originally sat down to go through the works of Stephen King, like I said, in the chronological order of publication. Been there, done that. I accomplished that particular mission. And since then, I've been able, it's freed me up to tackle a lot of areas regarding Stephen King. So what we're going to be doing today, um, I'm going to just be filling you in on what's been going on in my life uh, since I last recorded. So for those of you who do get frustrated, please understand that for the first few minutes of this particular episode, I am going to be talking about myself. Not much, but I did want to give a spoiler warning for those of you who just want to get to the meat and potatoes. Warning, it's out there. Um, I'm going to read some listener emails, some iTunes reviews, but the, the thrust of this particular episode is going to be around the trailer for uh, Pet Cemetery, which dropped last month, and uh, my review of Stephen King's Call a Short Story, Call it a Novella, call it whatever you will, um, his latest publication, Elevation, which came out um, on October 30th. So I'm looking forward to this. I've been wanting to get my thoughts down for a while. Um, but like I said, um, life has been really, really busy. Not bad busy, good busy. Um, I, you know, I'm just going to take a, just a, a very, very quick moment to just talk about, um, you know, this time of year, we're supposed to be thankful. So I'm just thankful for the opportunities that, my life has been able to uh, offer me, um, and I'm just thankful for, like I said, everyone that I um, am speaking to right now. But I'm also thankful for, you know, my real life, um, the people in it, uh, the people that I work with, and uh, the work that I'm able to do on a daily basis. I have really refocused myself this year in my profession, and I feel like it's been paying some dividends. Um, I, I, I just I feel very, very worthwhile. Um, and I think that it's, it's just been paying off for, um, not just myself, but others. And, um, I've been challenging myself and I think that it's good every now and then to challenge yourself and to push yourself and see where you can grow and areas that you can improve. And so I've done that. And that has meant that I haven't been able to really focus on the Stephen King cast as much, but, um, I knew that I would have moments like this to be able to sit down and, there will always be ebbs and flows when I am able to be able to, to record. But I knew, I, I, I had a feeling that after Castle Rock concluded, it, it, it was a natural break. So I, I figured I would take that, which I did. Um, and it doesn't mean that 
It's going to be another few months before I record. Who knows when the next recording is going to be, but I do want to let you know that I am still planning on reviewing uh, all of Joe Hill's Lock and Key. I have my notes ready to go, um, so at, at the, the, the most opportune time, I will uh, sit down, record those, and put them all out to you. So um, there is that to look forward to. Also, those of you who um, are not just fans of Stephen King but are also fans of David Lynch, don't forget that I have another podcast, um, Hanging with Agent Cooper, um, in which I reviewed um, and, and, and put down all of my thoughts on Twin Peaks The Return, um, 2017's Twin Peaks The Return. So that is also out there on the, the, the interwebs, so you can you know definitely check that out. Okay, guys, before I get any farther, I do want to read some listener email because I can't do it alone. I need you guys out there. So if you have any thoughts on Stephen King, on Castle Rock, on It, on The Dark Tower, on on uh, Elevation, on whatever, feel free to write into Stephen Kingcast and uh, I'll get back to you when I can, but I'll definitely review or I'll read your uh, your email on the air. And just so you guys know, um, I wanted to let you know that I just recorded about 20 minutes of audio, and then my computer crashed. So I am re-recording everything that I just said, um, which is all of the email reviews and my conversation with you guys. So I apologize if I do speed through anything or if I feel like I'm you might think that I'm glossing over some stuff. It's only because it's my, um, uh, how, how would I put it? My next go around on, on the wheel of Ka. Okay. So, um, first up we have Alicia who writes, hello, constant reader. Um, I can't tell you how happy I am to have found your podcast. I've been listening to the Stephen King cast since 2015, and I know that you hear it all the time, but your podcast keeps me sane during my long hours commute. Thank you. I wanted to share my thoughts about the conclusion of Castle Rock. Ruth Deaver is our constant. So guys, I want to put a pin in for a second and just let you know, spoiler alert, for all of Castle Rock, Hulu's Castle Rock, which premiered this summer. Those of you who have not watched it, I do implore you, you should go out and watch it um, because it's worthwhile. It's really, really good. It's celebratory of Stephen King. It stands on its own. Um, and it's going to make you think. So as you know, Alicia is, is writing here, a lot of what she writes, um, and her thoughts are indicative of the quality of what this show is. So spoiler alert, Ruth Deaver, Deaver is our constant in both the kids reality and our reality. She suffers from Alzheimer's. She's the best only one who is the, the same in both realities. I think that it's not from Alzheimer's at all. I think that's the trauma caused by her slipping out of her preferred timeline, the one in which Alan is alive and they're spending their twilight years together. Poor Ruth may have inadvertently put herself into an Ouroboros-type situation over the guilt she feels felt for loving Alan Pangborn and the regret she feels slash felt um, over not acting on it sooner. And this is a really interesting theory, and it goes back to, you know, where you stand on what's occurring in this world um, of, of Castle Rock. So much of it could be um, that there is more supernatural at play, 
Um, you could make the argument that it is, uh, you know, that she just does have Alzheimer's. And you can make this argument that, that um, you know, Alicia is making that there is a massive uh, supernatural element um, at play here. Regardless, it is open for interpretation, and that is the joy of Castle Rock. And I'm not sure exactly where I stand on it, and I think that... As the weeks and months and years go by, I think that I'll have different opinions on it. And, and, and based on my life experiences, I might go back and watch it and, and, and come to it from a different perspective, which will make me land in a different, in a different way. But that is a testament to uh, Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason for their ability to craft um, a show of mystery and ambiguity um, that's going to have us talking about it long after uh, it has concluded. And then Alicia continues, the kid is malevolent. I don't believe he started off that way in his timeline. However, after he followed R. Henry through uh, the Thinny and spent 27 years as the warden's captive, I believe his heart grew stonier. His desire to get back to his unborn child and wife superseded any guilt he felt about what he had to do to make that happen. I think it dehumanized him, and that's why Henry saw him as the monster he had become. He was well aware of the effect his being in our dimension caused by that point. Why else would he just walk into that family's home if it wasn't to test his theory? Also, let's talk about why you would send Alan on that frivolous errand of retrieving Lacey's car from the dump, if not to have that time alone with Ruth to terrorize her and ultimately be the catalyst of Alan's death, which in turn presented the opportunity to draw Henry out into the woods opening the doorway. It could also be that he is his father's son, and maybe a little bit of that crazy was passed down, but I truly think that's the former. Anyway, thank you again for taking the time to satiate all of Stephen King's discussion needs. Looking forward to episode 197, Alicia. Alicia, thank you for writing in. These are really, really good thoughts. Um, and if you have any more on um, either Castle Rock or anything else, please feel free to write in. Then we have Scott who writes, hello, I wanted to write in and say that I recently just was turned on to your podcast from another podcast, The Horror Virgin. One of the hosts of that podcast, Jen, mentioned your podcast during their most recent episode on the De Palma version of Carrie. I would recommend their podcast as well. It's very good. Plus, Jen is a huge King fan as well. Um, so I'm going to interject. I haven't listened to The Horror Virgin yet. I do follow Jen on Twitter and she follows me. Uh, and so we've corresponded a little bit. Um, but I, I think that is important that we do, uh, celebrate and support other horror podcasts out there. So if anyone out there is listening to my podcast, um, and next week, if there isn't a new Stephen King cast episode and you want to get that horror fix, then head out, check out the horror virgin and see if that's something for you. I think that we should all, um, like I said, support each other, um, because we all have similar interests. All right, uh, Scott continues. As for me, I got into King around third grade. That's early. When I found a box of my mom's old King books in my grandparents' basement, I first read Cujo and was hooked. Of course, I didn't pick up on all the aspects um, of the novel being so young at the time. However, I loved what I did understand. From there, I read It and then The Stand. I read both the cut version and then the uncut and complete version back to back. I recently just started to read King's bibliography from the beginning myself. Um, I've read a decent amount of his works. There are many more I have yet to read. I'm very intrigued, and your podcast has pointed out much that I did not notice. Thank you for the time and the work that you've put into this show. I'm enjoying it very much. Scott. Scott, thank you for writing in. Then we have Clayton, who writes, Dear Stephen Kingcast, I finally caught up with your chronological podcast after only discovering it about a month ago. 
That is... That is a deep and quick dive into this podcast. He continues, I have the privilege to listen to music slash audiobook slash podcasts at work, so I've plowed through it as quickly as Roland plowed through the citizens of Tall. It was extremely difficult not to skip around, but I stood true and I listened to your episodes in order. I did have to skip the Talisman and the Black House episodes as I have yet to read those. I am very grateful and appreciative of your hard work, dedication, and insight. With your critical analysis, I have come to appreciate and love King's works in new ways. You have convinced me to give Tommyknockers another try. It didn't grab me right out of the gate. I read some very unfavorable reviews and decided to leave it in the dust like the Horn of Eld. After hearing your podcast and review, I'm hesitantly excited to try it again. So, yeah, Clayton, I mean, what's stopping you? Like, if you try it and you don't like it, you don't like it. But if you try it and you do like it, then, you know... It's a fun experience. I really enjoyed uh, going back and, and rereading Tommy Knockers. And hey, the the time is right for it. I mean, the, the, they're making uh, a, a cinematic adaptation. I mean, the only time we we got a adaptation of the Tommy Knockers was uh, in the early '90s on ABC, which was just of a different time. And there's definitely a cheese factor to it. And it's not great, and but that is probably actually something that I will get around to reviewing at some point, probably as the uh, as we start to head into the actual Tommy Knockers movie. Well, once that starts to get closer to fruition, and we're still a couple years away, um, but that's that's definitely something to look forward to. But it go back and check out the book because it's it's just batshit crazy fun. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not. You know, it doesn't have deep, profound wisdom, um, but it is, I mean, if you have a flying killer Coke machine, like there's something, there's something to that book. Um, so I, I strongly recommend reading the Tommy Knockers. And then Clayton continues, early in your podcast, I heard you say that you don't listen to audiobooks. If you have never listened to Frank Muller's reading of the first three or four Dark Tower books, you're seriously missing out. King himself said that when he hears the voice of Roland in his head, he hears it through Frank Muller. Unfortunately, Muller was in a motorcycle accident that kept him from reading the rest of the Dark Tower again, again with the evil cars and vehicles. I highly recommend them. Also, Nightmares and Dreamscapes had an amazing cast for the audiobook. Whoopi Goldberg reads Suffer the Little Children, Rob Lowe reads Dolan's Cadillac, and Tim Curry reads Crouch End. So I'll interject. Um, Yeah, I I have said before that I don't read audiobooks. It's not because I don't like audiobooks. It's just that when I sit down, I want to actually read. There's something I just, I like holding, I like holding a book. I'll read them digitally too, but I, my preferred way of reading a book is actually reading a book. Now, with all that said, I, uh, lately on my commute to and from work, I've been trying to tune out podcasts more, um, because I just feel like I need to think more and I need to allow my brain a time to just rest without it being hit by information, whether information be, um, you know, movie analysis or watching something on television or, or whatever it is. I just, I feel like I need to give my brain a rest. Um, and I'm able to give my brain a rest when I sit down and I read. And I feel like I would be able to give my brain a rest if on my commute to work, I was reading through an audiobook. Um, it's just, it, it attacks a different portion of the brain than, uh, and if I'm listening to a podcast and and it's an analysis and I'm agreeing or disagreeing with whatever podcast that I'm listening to. Uh, so that's a long way of saying that I, I think at some point in the future I will definitely get around to 
getting into the world of audiobooks. And once I do, I do want to check out Muller's uh, audiobook readings of The Dark Tower, just as I want to get into Stephen Weber's reading of it. I mean, these are things that I definitely want to check off on my bucket list someday. So it will happen. I just don't know when. All right, Clayton continues. I just finished your unfortunate review of Sleepwalkers. Normally, your critical analysis is full of fair and informed insight. Mayhap it's because you are unaware of some of the facts and customs of the Hoosier state. Okay, so he continues. One, the imagery of the rose at the beginning of the movie and the dead girl's hair clearly establishes this movie deep into the canon of the Dark Tower. Two, while the bad boy of the movie is cruising the back roads of Indiana, the cinematographer gave us a rare view of the little-known mountain range located in our fair state. Number three, corn is completely acceptable as a deadly weapon. In Indiana, between... 217 and 1,409 are killed annually from corn-related accidents. Four, it is customary in our state for the man of the house to greet intruders in our home by launching himself into the nearest piece of furniture. Five, my wife and I love this movie so much that Santo and Johnny's Sleepwalk was our wedding song. Okay, only that last one is true. Now, guys, want to establish something. What Clayton just did, okay... This dry humor that he did very, very well is the exact same thing that I did in my review of The Stand when I stated that Franny Goldsmith was the mother of the Crimson King. That, much like what Clay is doing here, was a joke and is not meant to be taken seriously, so I want to go on record again for anyone that listened to The Stand review and thought that I was being serious when I... Um, argued that because Franny was eating at the Dairy Queen, that that was an indication <laughs> that her child was the Crimson King, that that was just a joke. I want to go on record again. I wasn't being serious. Okay. Clayton continues, I thank you. I thank you big, big. I'm eager to listen to your reviews on th and thoughts on the more recent adaptations. 112263. I couldn't finish it. The book was phenomenal. The show, ugh. The Mist series, um, what was that? Great question. Mr. Mercedes loved it in all the three books. I'm going to interject. Yes, the, 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 the show is great, and it is a tragedy that nobody talks about it. People talked about uh, uh, Castle Rock. People, um, of course, talked about it. They're, they're, they're just in, in the world of Stephen King right now, people like talking about Stephen King, but no one is talking about Mr. Mercedes, which is a shame. It's a shame. It is such a well-done television show. And I'm looking forward to when, I, I don't know if season two has concluded yet, um, but when it does, I will probably sign up for a month subscription of DirecTV. I did a free week trial um, to review the first season, but I'll probably do like a month trial or a month um, subscription to DirecTV so I can review season two and not just review it. I probably would do it just to watch it because the show is really, really well done. And this is coming from someone that really hated the book, Mr. Mercedes. And it, the, the show was so good that it actually made me think that I was wrong on Mr. Mercedes. I don't know if I was wrong, but I do know that the show did wonders in um, making me question that and making me really appreciate the characters in a way because I wasn't able to appreciate them uh, the way that Stephen King wrote them in the first book. So if you haven't checked out Mr. Mercedes, please do do yourself a favor. It's done really, really well. It's really, really good. 
Um, and then uh, Clayton concludes by writing, I'll end this email with my intention of continuing this conversation later. I've got some bones to pick with you regarding Oi and Andy the Robot and thoughts about Mordred. All a tale and an email for another day. Safe travels, Clayton of Indiana. Clayton, I want to give you a big shout out for a masterful use of references and Easter eggs uh, in this email. And I'm really looking forward to you actually fulfilling your promise um, by writing in with your thoughts on Oi and Andy and Mordred. I want to know what you're thinking. So please write in when you do get a chance. Up next, we have Jeremy who writes, Hi, Constant Reader. My name is Jeremy, and I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time now. I've always admired Stephen King's work through movie adaptations, but I'm a true fan now that I've started reading his novels. I saw the Dark Tower movie, and I loved it, but I was shocked on how many bad reviews it got from fans who actually read the series, so I had to check them out for myself, and I can see what they mean now. I'm currently in the third book, and I'm absolutely enjoying the story, especially since it has lots of aspects that I personally find interesting, such as the idea of time travel and the multiverse, and most importantly, the fact that a lot of his books are connected uh, to this story. I'm looking forward to reading them as well. I know that at this point you are done with his books, but I still hope that you find more content to review on your podcast. It's definitely one of my favorites. Thank you. Long days and pleasant nights. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is definitely more for me to uh, check out because I, even though I technically have finished uh, the his books in the order of, uh, chronological order of publication, there are some gaps. I haven't read the Colorado Kid. I didn't. I didn't review Blaze. I um, still have to review uh, in the Tall Grass his his uh, the book that he co-wrote with Joe Hill, his son, um, and that short story slash novella, whatever you want to call it, is really good, and it's gonna be made into a Netflix movie. So the time is ripe for me to be to to review that. The time is rich for you guys to read it. Um, it's really haunting. It's really effective. It sticks with you. Um, it's dark. It's good. It's a really, 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 really well done, um, uh, collaboration between father and son. Um, I would probably say that of the collaborations that I have read, um, with him. So I, not that there's many, but it's, it's, uh, Sleeping Beauties and I guess Into Tall Grass. I didn't read Throttle. Um, but, uh, I, Strongly recommend uh, In the Tall Grass. It's a good one. And I'll get around to that one eventually. And then we have Craig. Uh, Nope. Yeah, we have Craig who writes, Dear Stephen King cast, I love your podcast. I've been a listener for quite some time. I would like to point out an Easter egg from Castle Rock. I think it was episode four or five. Henry walks into Ruth's house at one point and the TV is on, but no one is watching. On the TV is an episode... Uh, of the Twilight Zone called The Howling Man. This episode is about a traveler who takes refuge in a monastery only to discover that the monks are keeping a prisoner they believe to be the devil. The traveler begins talking to the prisoner who pleads with him, trying to convince him the monks are crazy. After coming to the conclusion that the prisoner is correct, he lets him out. Then he sees that the prisoner in his true form um, and marches out of the monastery triumphant. The traveler spends the rest of his life trying to find the devil and correct his mistake. Uh, when I saw this, I was immediately convinced the kid was evil. Great job by the writers to include this hint. Thanks again, Craig. Craig, great observation. I didn't talk about it on uh, my review 
because I didn't even catch it. So I'm glad that you did. I did see that um, some other reviews uh, did mention that about the Howling Man. And so I, I do want to elaborate a little bit on the Howling Man. This is a, I'm really glad that you pointed this out um, because it's, it's allowing me to talk a little bit about this. So for those of you who don't know, the, the, the Howling Man, like Craig said, it, it is an episode of the, the Twilight Zone. But it's written by an author by the name of Charles Beaumont, who, um, whose short story collection, I don't know if you can find it or not. I, I, I mean, obviously do an Amazon search. If you can, if you can order anything by Charles Beaumont, please do. Um, but you, you might be actually better off just hunting your local live, um, used bookstores to see if you can find something. He is an unsung hero in the, the, the realm of horror fiction. He... Uh, reads like a mix between Stephen King and Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury. He has a, a magical quality to his writing. It's very descriptive. It packs a punch. Um, and he, I think he died very early, and so he really wasn't able to to gain traction um, in the world of horror. But he he's legit. He's legit. And I think that if you um, want to read some powerful uh, pieces of horror slash science fiction, then Charles Beaumont is your guy. Now, going back to Twilight Zone, you can watch his episode of The Howling Man. All you have to do is go on to Netflix uh, because uh, Twilight Zone is available on Netflix. It's another reason why I love my wife so much. Every night before she goes to bed, she <laughs> she puts on The Twilight Zone. And so I've been able to revisit it lately. Um, and it's amazing how, how prolific Rod Serling was to write most of these episodes himself, direct them, produce them, like edit them, everything. Um, and all of the episodes are completely different. They're their own story. They pack a punch. Um, they're profound. They're ahead of their time. They're from their time. It, it, it's, I don't know if there's anything equivalent to the Twilight Zone in, in our day and age. I guess Black Mirror, I guess you could say. But I mean, even the, it, it, it's not, Black Mirror does pack a punch for sure. But it, I don't know if it has the same, um, uh, there, there's clearly not the uh, same amount of content. It's not the same content. There, there, there isn't nearly as much Black Mirror um, as there is, you know, the Twilight Zone. You know, maybe, and I don't even know if, if Charlie Booker is, he doesn't write everyone, right? I mean, not the way that Rod Serling did. I mean, Rod Serling wrote most of them. Um, not all of them, but he wrote most of them. I would actually, in, in order for me to make this claim, I would need to actually look more into Black Mirror, which I do, I do, I do enjoy. Okay, um, so there we go with uh, with Craig. Um, okay, guys, so if you haven't done so already, feel free to write into the Stephen King cast because um, I can't do it without you guys. And similarly, if you haven't done so, head on over to iTunes and uh, leave a review for Stephen King cast on iTunes because it will really, really help me out. So write into Stephen King cast, yahoo.com, go over to YouTube, uh, iTunes, I mean, and leave a review on iTunes. It will really, really help me out. Okay. Now I said at the beginning that I was going to dive into my review of the Pet Cemetery trailer, and then I was going to get into Elevation. I completely forgot that I need to talk about something that wasn't directly Stephen King related, but in the world of Stephen King. Um, and I didn't want another day to go by where I didn't at least get my thoughts out in a general sense about the haunting of Hill House. 
So the reason why I'm able to talk about it here is because it was uh, directed and the showrunner was um, Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan uh, directed Gerald's Game and he is directing Doctor Sleep. Now, I enjoyed Gerald's Game. I did. I enjoyed it. Um, but after watching The Haunting of Hill House, I am more excited to see what Mike Flanagan can do with Dr. Sleep than I am about anything else. It Part 2, Tommyknockers, you name it. I am way more intrigued at what he is able to bring to uh, Dr. Sleep with the cast that he has lined up. Uh, Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, like... Ugh, this is going to be, and I I ride for Doctor Sleep. Um, I know that a lot of people out there don't like it, and I do. Again, I will continue to uh, ask people to listen to my review of Doctor Sleep because if you don't like it because it's not The Shining, please give it another chance because it was never meant to be The Shining. And I can understand feeling some disappointment when you watch something or you experience something and you wanted it to be one thing, but you need to move past that and experience it for what it is. And Dr. Sleep is not meant to be The Shining, as I've long stated. It zigs where, there's, where The Shining zags, and um, it is a shadow to the, the Shining. It's a really well-done companion piece. And I, I strongly recommend revisit Dr. Sleep and uh, listen to my review of Dr. Sleep. With all that said, I liked Gerald's game. I didn't realize how talented Mike Flanagan actually was until watching The Haunting of Hill House. I've watched it twice now. I will probably watch it again. Will I do an episode-by-episode episode recap on it? I probably won't. Um, but there is so much to pick apart in this show. I love the setting. I love the sets. The casting is phenomenal for a couple of reasons. One, all around the acting is, is, is solid. The one thing that impressed me from the very first episode was the balance that Flanagan, uh, maintained in delivering the information of the characters' names without jamming it down our throats. Because one of my biggest pet peeves is when a character constantly refers to another character by their name, all right? Because that's not how life works. However, the characters in The Haunting of Hill House are referred to so often, naturally, that you know all of their names by the end of the first episode and you can identify them. It's not just, oh, it's that one and that one and that one. No, you know that it's Stephen and Nell and Theo and Luke and Olivia. And like, you know, you know what their names are naturally. That's an effective, um, an effective example of storytelling. Um, and, and I immediately, I was like, I know their names right away. Good job. Good job, Mike Flanagan. It's a little thing, but it goes a long way. Casting, um, the acting across the board, I, I was I was very very pleased with. Um, everyone brought a, a, a different perspective um, to the proceedings, but what I really really liked was all of um, Olivia's daughters. They all do look 
like uh, Carla Gugino. They all do look like her. So, I mean, there is a resemblance there that I think really, really works well. And whoever's idea it was to cast, spoiler alert, Tim Hutton as an older version of uh, Henry Thomas, that is genius level casting. Genius. Um, And the two of them do such a good job at playing this character in, in their respective timelines. Uh, so I, I, like I said, I have watched this episode or this, um, this show twice now. Episode six clearly has been talked about a lot and it should be talked about a lot. The, the, the level of craft that goes into the long takes, it's incredible. It's just, you feel like you're watching a play and it's so well done. And so on one level, it is an emotionally fraught episode. So from a storytelling standpoint, you're, you're invested, you're there, you're engaged. But if you do like behind the scenes stuff and and you're into this sort of thing and you notice that is a long take, um, and a series of long takes, like you're getting an, an extra level of enjoyment at the marvel of watching of knowing that how much practice and effort went and planning went into this and, and the magic trick that goes into this. Uh, so episode six, of course, is great. And there is a beautiful conversation, a series of beautiful conversations in episode 10 that has been criticized. Episode 10 has been criticized for being uh, This Is Us meets uh, The Haunting of Hill House. And I can understand that. I do think it is, I do think that the, the sentiment I, I don't think that it, it ever really became mawkish, um, but I, I do I do understand why people might say that. Um, but there is a beautiful conversation about children and uh, the love of of parents and their children. I, 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 I there is a conversation that I think is uh, is is profound, and I think that is beautiful, and I don't think that it detracts from the horror of what the 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 haunting of Hill House was, which is a a great metaphor for generational trauma and and families and the baggage that we carry and the metaphorical ghosts that haunt us, right? They don't have to be physical ghosts, and that's why it works so well, is that if you want to watch it and it's just a story about a family being haunted, yeah, you can watch it. But if you want to watch it as a metaphor for just the the shared trauma that a family can have and the guilt that we all carry, then it it works on another level. And then the acting then brings it to a new level. And the actor that played Mr. Dudley, when he gives that six or seven-minute long monologue, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um... And it's great. And the, the show and the, the, the narrative of the show itself, the way that it just it, it bounces between the past to the present and the, the mystery of the adults having to deal with something that occurred in the past that they don't quite remember. And one character dies by suicide and the number is seven. Like all of that does seem very familiar to fans of Stephen King, right? So the narrative structure immediately, you know, hooked me in. Now I I had seen 1999's Liam Neeson starring The Haunting. I wish that I hadn't. Um, And in my past, I had seen um, just on television. I never really sat down to intentionally watch it, but I have caught pieces of some of the other versions. But I had never actually read the Shirley Jackson original. Um, So this is my first full experience of 
of The Haunting of Hill House in, in an adaptation that I was really, really into. Um, and I probably will go read the Shirley Jackson uh, story just to compare and contrast because I know that the, the Netflix show is its own thing. But it's worth it. So anyone that is listening to this that has not watched it, please, please go and watch it because it is worth every minute of the hype. It is haunting. I mean, it is haunting. At the end, you, you think about everything that's happened. You think about some of the insinuations that are built into the show. It will stick with you. Um, it has stuck with me. And um, like I said, after this... Uh, Dr. Sleep, it is up there. I'm really looking forward to seeing what Mike Flanagan has in store. Uh, he does well with haunted houses. And I don't know how closely Dr. Sleep is going to adhere to the book. Um, I don't know. Spoiler alert for Dr. Sleep. Spoiler alert. Um, you know, the, the, the overlook in the book universe has exploded, so it doesn't exist. In the movies the overlook is still there. So I don't know if Dr. Sleep will take place at any point at the overlook. If it does, this 10 hours was almost feels like Mike Flanagan's um, come at me, bro, sort of statement on uh, on whether or not he could pull off something like The, the Shining. He definitely can. He created a really, really well done haunted house um, filled with very identifiable ghosts um, that are, are haunting, whether it's the, the tall man that uses a cane and who floats in the air, which is a great idea, um, or the bent neck lady. There, there are great ghosts in, in The Haunting of Hill House, and I believe that he could contribute to the, the world of Stephen King and The Overlook if The Overlook exists in the cinematic version of Dr. Sleep. So, guys... Check it out. It's well worth your time. What is not worth your time? Great segue. And I'm sorry, guys, for those of you who enjoyed it. But the trailer for Pet Cemetery. I was excited about this. And the trailer left me feeling nothing. Nothing. Some people out there are upset that um, John Lithgow isn't doing an over-the-top accent. I'm fine with it. I actually like the fact that he's not going with any accent. Because... Anyone that tries to do a Maine accent that isn't naturally from Maine, it is, it is uh, cartoonish. So you, you gotta like, you gotta love Fred Quinn's accent from the original Pet Cemetery um, because it is so over the top. But but I really appreciate the fact that John Lithgow is not doing it. So that's not a knock against it. That's actually a, that's something for the the plus column, not not the minus column. But listen, here here's the thing, and I tweeted about this a little bit. This trailer, it's well done, right? It's fine, right? But that's the word I would use to describe it. It's fine, right? Nothing about it is particularly haunting. Nothing about it is uh, truly scary. It looks jump scary to me, all right? Kids with the masks walking through the woods beating a drum does not, it, it's a visual, it's a spooky visual, I guess, that would be, that would work well in anything that wasn't Pet Cemetery, But Guys, let's let's step back and remember what Pet Cemetery is. All right, at the core of what Pet Cemetery is. Pet Cemetery is one of Stephen King's most deeply unpleasant novels, written when he is in the prime of his life, his early 30s. 
It is a story of a man in his early 30s with a burgeoning career moving into a house with his wife, his two children. Everything at this point in, in Lewis's life is supposed to be great. He is at the precipice of greatness for the rest of his life. He is in his prime. His family is young. Everything is beautiful. The novel is the admittance that life is not going to turn out the way that you want it to. It is the death of family. It is the death of love and hope and promise. It is one of the most bleakest things that Stephen King has ever written. It is a truly unpleasant experience, right? It's so effectively done. Nothing about this trailer is unpleasant. Nothing about this trailer speaks of anguish or deep-seated, uh, like, uh, unsettling nature. It just seems very jump-scary and fine, right? Kind of spooky, I guess. And if you're into that, if you... If it, if you want, a, a, if you're fine with just a serviceable Pet Cemetery on the surface remake, then okay, maybe this trailer is for you. But I, I, unfortunately for the creators of of this new movie, I had just watched Hereditary a couple weeks before this trailer came out, and I can't stop thinking about Hereditary. That movie sticks with you, and that movie is very similar in some of the content. I don't want to get into spoilers, but it is very, very similar um, about, yeah, I, I can't get into it without getting into spoilers about Hereditary. If you haven't seen Hereditary, you need to get, you need to determine what side of the fence you're on with Hereditary. Some people think that it is a, a masterpiece in horror. Others think that it's not. I think it is an A-plus masterpiece in horror. I'm probably never going to watch it again. It, it, it's too effective in what it does. It is so well done. Um... It sticks with you on a gut level, all right? There's not a lot of jump scares. There are some really freaky moments. But the, the, the strength of Hereditary is how awful it makes you feel. It puts you through the ringer. And that's what the Pet Cemetery movie, I feel, needs to do. Um, I think that the, a, a, a Pet Cemetery movie in 2018 with our storytelling sensibilities being so heightened and fine-tuned, I think that it can make you feel as though you have lost a child. And who wants to feel that way, right? Like, that, that is the thing. And, you know, I am hyper-aware of this book because, you know, clearly I have a child around the age of Gage, right? So when I think about this movie, I clearly think about my own life and my own love and my own experience as, as a father. And it is a, a night, it's the worst possible scenario. And there's no words like me saying this. It's just like me in a dream trying to shout and I can't, like you can't truly verbalize the, 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 the true horror of this. Right. But I think that a movie can convey it through tone, um, and, and, and through, uh, storytelling choices. None of that is evident. None of it is evident in, in this trailer. This trailer just seems a, like a nothing burger to me. Um, and it is just a teaser, right? It, it, there could be more depth to it, but I got a bad feeling that this is just, it's, it's going to be nothing. It's going to be a nothing of a movie. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not, 
I did not like Starry Eyes. I know that that kind of puts me on the outs with a lot of people. It, it's a, it's a celebrated movie in the horror community. In the in horror community, I wasn't into it. I didn't like Starry Eyes, so I'm I'm not I'm not sold on the promise of of what the directors were able to bring. I was I was jazzed for a while, and then I saw the trailer, and I'm I'm out. So um, I if a second trailer comes out and I turns me around, I will definitely uh, be for it. You know, I, I will admit that I was wrong, um, but uh, but the way that it stands, I, I am not into it. So hopefully, hopefully, I can be proven wrong, and um, I would love to be wrong, but a- as of right now, I want this movie to be a terrible, <laughs> a terrible movie-going experience where I am uh, crying and I'm upset and um, it sticks with me and it's a feeling that I never forget and it makes me never want to watch the movie again and um, it makes me want to hold my kid a little bit longer. Like, And I have none of those feelings from watching the trailer. But that's just me. If you have any thoughts on the Pet Cemetery trailer, feel free to write in at uh, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay. Now, the thing that's interesting is that Stephen King wrote Pet Cemetery when he was a younger man, okay? And it was his examination of death, and it was his uh, uh, his thesis on death and, and what it means to someone that's younger in life, all right? Someone that is at the beginning of his life as a family man, right? Uh, you know, Lewis, like I said you know, um, had two very, very young children and he had nothing but a a promising future of a career and as a family man ahead of him and all of that's taken away from him. And he is, he is, he at that moment becomes a, a walking zombie as everyone else around him becomes a literal walking zombie. And he is an undead character in a living world. And, um, like I said, it is it is horrible and it is unholy and it is a um, truly truly um, unpleasant story to absorb because it is told from the perspective of a a, a person that is younger in their lives and life is in full bloom. Okay, so the idea of death and and the, and the removal of that life and that love and that light um, is so awful. Um, and what's interesting is that King has written about death in, 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 on multiple occasions, and the, I, I think the biggest example is Pet Cemetery. And there is a a, a wonderful um, companion piece to that. And that's Revival. And Revival is written from Stephen King later in life. So his view of death is different. It doesn't have that that gut punch horror or um, horror of, of the concept of death. Um, it, it's, it's different. It's bleaker, but there is an acceptance to it, a, a resignation um, of it. It, it, it is, uh, it's still horrific in its own way. But our main character understanding it, it's different because it's written from someone that has experienced it more. 
you know, um, you go through the different stages of your life. You go through the stage of the life where everyone gets married. Then you go through the stage of your life where everyone starts to have a kid. Then you go through a stage of life where you're going to funerals a lot. And then people you know, okay, then it's not just like the parents of your friends. Then it starts to become your friends. And um, so you, you become more and more and more acquainted with death and it becomes a part of your life. And so when revival comes around, there's still a deep horror to it. Um, but it, it, it's not attacking the, the promise of the future, right? The future isn't as bright. The future is a lot shorter. Um, it's not cutting down the potential of what could be. It's the acknowledgement that you are closing in towards the end, all right? So it's, it's a different perspective. And then Stephen King has released um, his latest examination of death, which is completely different from both Pet Cemetery and um, Revival. It's Elevation, which was released on October 30th, 2018. And Elevation is a short story slash novella. Um, and I read it in one day. And you can read it in one day. And um, coming off of The Outsider, which was a heavy book, um, both uh, physically and uh you know, thematically, it's a heavy book. Um, Elation, it, it's still, you know, it it reads very, very quickly. The content seems very, very late, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately after reading it um, because this too, um, this sticks with you in many ways. And again, it's Stephen King um, making yet another statement about death and the acceptance of death to the point where when I read it, I closed it and there was a beauty to it. But I said to myself, I said, should I be worried? Was this Stephen King working through his feelings? Is something going on with Stephen King that we don't know about? Is he like, if he, if he, if it was announced tomorrow, that he has passed away of an illness, elevation is going to matter a lot more. That's a morbid thought. But if you read elevation as an acceptance of death, um, the main character, Scott, in elevation, um, it's all about him coming to terms with his death and giving back to the world. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not a long, drawn-out, anguish styled story it is really beautiful it's uplifting it's inspiring but it made me wonder like oh my god is something going on with our guy you know really what it is it is about trying to make the world a better place before you say goodbye to it um so right away we uh are introduced to our main character scott um and Scott is suffering from supernatural weight loss. This is not King's first time, but uh, unlike Thinner, I'll just get right to it. I mean, it makes you think of Thinner. I mean, this is with the experience of someone um, of, of older age. It, I mean, they're, again, kind of, you know, comparing and contrasting Pet Cemetery with Revival. I'm going to compare Thinner to Elevation. And in Thinner there is a horror to this weight loss. Cause again, it's about a, a younger guy with a younger family and, and here someone later on in life and he's in his forties. It 
reads more like he, he's in his 60s, but it's someone that isn't um, at that early cusp of, of life. It's someone that's more able to sort of accept a condition that he has rather than really fight against the condition and be freaked out by the condition. Um, and this supernatural weight loss is, is different. Like, so when the main character of Thinner, he's losing weight, he's literally losing weight, all right? And it's, it's something that's identifiable and it's something that you would see normally except there's that supernatural tinge to it where he's, no matter what he does, he's losing weight. Whereas in this, in Elevation, he's losing weight, but he's, his body isn't changing. And it's cool because like he'll wear a coat and he'll weigh it down and it's still the same weight. So there's a deep supernatural, um, mystical, magical quality to his weight loss um, that it, it's, it's, it's really neat the way that it's presented. And we're introduced to the weight loss and to Scott through a conversation that Scott has with... Um, a retired Dr. Bob. And this is what makes King King, all right? It's what makes our guy our guy. We witness these two characters trying to make sense of this condition. And through their conversation, we are able to enter the strangeness of Scott's situation, you know, the, the, the impossibility of it. Um, whether or not Scott is playing a practical joke on Bob, um, his fear of going to the actual doctor, and just generally how Scott's feeling about it. Like, you know, and, and, and he does it through this very naturalistic conversation without spending too much time in headspace of, of Scott, you know, in, in the headspace of Bob questioning. It's, it's all natural conversation that reveals the ease with which these two characters are able to talk about this um, and how much Scott has wanted to talk about it. And King at this point in his career, you know, he's able to create characters fully fleshed out very, very quickly. And this entire, I don't know what to call it. I mean, it is so short. It's 146 pages of, and it's a very small book. Um, book, you see, I'm calling it a book. It's not really a book, but it, it's a, a, a fully fleshed out story um, with fully fleshed out characters. And it zips along because of his ability to craft these characters through conversations like this. And as the initial conversation concludes, King teases the introduction of the main plot, this town's relationship with Missy and Deirdre, the lesbian married couple that has caused waves in Castle Rock. And again, King shows what he does so well. I mean, he tells a gripping story. Now, while the subject of the mysterious weight loss is captivating and all, immediately upon the arrival of Missy and Deirdre into the plot, I just wanted to know more. Specifically, I needed to know if the dogs were shitting on Scott's lawn. I needed to know this more than I wanted to know what was going to happen with Scott's magic weight loss. And that's a testament to Stephen King's ability to tell a story. And when we get our first impression of Deirdre as a frosty, unlikable character, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's our second major character here. And, you know, King you know, teases the warmth out of her through empathy and what we learn later. But first, when we learn about the dog drippings and, you know, the the, the way in which she presents herself, she is not a likable character. And I'll talk about her in a, in, a, in a little bit. And I think that this is 
a very smart decision on his part to present her in a way that is kind of unlikable. I'm going to talk about the nuance of what he is able to do with this book. Um, but really what it comes down to is King is, he does a really good job with perspectives and with small towns and who our neighbors are and how much we know of our neighbors. And Scott realizes he doesn't know anything about her. And the, the front that she's putting on is just that. It's just a front. And he realizes that because of this neighbor that has only been here for eight months, even though she's only been here for eight months, in this one conversation that he has with her, it reveals something about a town that he never knew about, a town that he's been living in for 30 years, I think he says. He discovers the town bigotry and the town rules that have been put into place to push them out. You know, and the fact that it's not that the town has an issue with the fact that Missy and Deirdre are lesbians, but the fact that they're married lesbians, that and this is what driving people's nuts, this is such a specific detail that it just, it makes it pop that much more because yes, that's how bigotry works. You create all these, so many bigots will just create these rules about what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, and they, they, they force society into their narrow-minded boxes, and, and King is able to really zero in on that. And this leads to Scott and Bob eating at the restaurant, right? Uh, the, the, the restaurant, um, Holy Fruit, Fruit, why can't I remember it? But uh, Missy and Deirdre's restaurant. And, um, you know, Scott is telling Bob about his increased energy, that he's losing mass. Um, and when he gets to that part, you know, the fact that he's losing mass, like, at that point, I'm like, uh-oh. Okay, that has some deadly implications, which turns out, you know, obviously to, to be true. But, you know, again, like, he has already written a story about weight loss and he's going about in a different way. Just like he's written a bunch of books about evil cars, no two are exactly the same. And it just shows you how well he's able to craft these stories where he's able to write of similar subject matter, but in completely different ways. And then we get to chapter three, when Halloween arrives and uh, King slips in a little comment about global warming and the deniers. Um, and that's true. It's true, guys. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. For those of you who lived in New England, I remember that when I was growing up, I remember, you know, fall was always synonymous with school. And I remember that school, the first couple months of school, got pretty crisp, pretty quick. And I remember that we have, you know, uh, um, a big fair that comes to town every year. Um, in mid-September, early October. And I remember going when I was a kid and I needed to bundle up because it got cold out. And in recent years, when I would go, it'd be like, it, it, it was like 90 degrees when I go. And it, it feels like it's the middle of the summer. I'm sweating and it's an awful feeling. And things have changed, um, for sure. And like when I, when I, last year when I went apple picking, it was so hot and uncomfortable. I will say this though, this year, I don't know what it was like for anyone else, but this was an incredible fall slash Halloween season. The leaves changed colors wonderfully, slowly. They fell off the trees slowly. We had the perfect balance of rain and no rain and it wasn't like it washed everything out and it, it just allowed for what fall is supposed to be, what I remember it being as a kid and 
Um, I hope, I hope for myself and I hope for my daughter that, you know, she is able to get more falls like this because it was the picturesque, um, fall that, that I remember from my youth and, uh, Halloween was great. It was really, it was a perfect, I remember that. I mean, it was a perfect Halloween day all around. It was clear, it was crisp, but not too cold. There was a wind that kind of bit your, your, your skin just a little bit, but not much. And it whipped leaves, you know, but not, didn't rip them from the trees, but the, the leaves were blowing and they were rustling and it was everything that it was supposed to be. I do remember that. So yeah, Stephen King is, is true in commenting on global warming. Um, but I was very, very grateful that this year I got perfect Halloween season, but that's just me. Um, and then Scott signs up for the turkey trot. And, uh, you know, what's cool about this is that when he signs up for this big turkey trot, like he's excited about this and this excitement, it's overpowering his fear. And this is completely unlike thinner where the the fear of the weight loss was overpowering everything else. His excitement, like his weight loss is he, part of him is like really likes it. He's excited about it. not just because he's losing weight, but he's excited at, at the unknown quality of it. And then it concludes with the wager, which I really, really like. You know, he doesn't back down from Deirdre. He he is so not aggressive, but he's consistent and persistent in his attempt to make a friend and to be a good neighbor. It is a patient and positive and kind and quiet approach to being a good citizen. And this is his commentary on what it takes to be a good person in this world, patient and kind and persistent. And he does so with warmth by saying, I'm going to race you. And if I win, you have to come eat in my house. Like that's awesome. That is really awesome. And it, it, it puts some stakes, low stakes, but stakes that mean everything. Um, guys, I'm sorry if you hear some burbling, like my stomach is, I'm hungry. So like you might be able to hear it on the microphone. And that allows for a lot of tension, um, fun tension in chapter four, the turkey trot. This is an eventful chapter. King places you there. Like he really does. Like he, I, I, I've run a bunch of races um, in my life. I was on cross country in high school. I've run a number of races since then, road races, you know, uh, here and there. And King gets it. That, that sensation of being with the crowd and pushing through and running and the elation that hits you, the elevation, if you want to call it, that Scott feels. Um, just like he does when he enters that final stretch, he begins to feel this exertion. But then he catches what I always called second wind, King here calls following wind, um, and it leads to the next phase of his weight loss, a literal elevation and he taught and he starts to float um so the real supernatural starts to take hold here and that um takes place to to chapter five after the race um the wager has led to deirdre finally allowing herself to warm up to scott but at first i worried because not only were deirdre and missy coming over to have dinner with scott and bob but uh, bob's wife was also coming who has been established as a uh, as a bigot in her own right um so i was worried here that we were going to get some sparks and whatever goodwill was 
occurring between Deirdre and uh, Scott was going to get uh, ruined because of this other person's inclusion and their narrow-mindedness, but it's a swerve, and Scott uh, fills everyone in on the condition, and um, in the process, he brings everyone together, and in doing so, King has created his latest quartet. And then the chapter concludes with societal healing. As the town cheers as uh, Dee Dee, she's going by Dee Dee now, um, lights the Christmas tree, declaring it the best tree in the best town in New England. Um, and by this point, following the race, her restaurant has become a hit. And this is just awesome. Like, it, it, it's a microcosm of, of what could be if we just allow ourselves to be a little bit more open and... Uh, and optimistic in, 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 in the ability to change. Um, Castle Rock was presented early on in this book as having a deep-seated uh, bigotry and homophobia, and you think that it's going to be like the Castle Rock from the show, Castle Rock, and it's going to be awful, and it's going to be mean-spirited, more like dairy, and there's no pulling out of it. But no, it's not how it is. They're able to see Missy and Deirdre as people, as human beings, as them, as one of them, as a town member that they should be proud of with a really cool restaurant and someone that is running the turkey race and is proud to, to light this Christmas tree. And it's great. It's great. And they accept them. They accept her. They accept them as a married lesbian couple. Um, and it's awesome. And that's not where the book ends. There's still half a book left after that. Um so it's, it's wonderful. It's just, I'm glad that, I'm glad of everything about this book. And then we have chapter six, The Incredible Lightness of Being. Because King knows that stories of the supernatural, they need rules to structure the conflict. He acknowledges Scott's condition um, and the, specifically the fact that the condition um, doesn't adhere to logic or physics. So um, he writes, there were limits to what Scott had come to think of as the weightless effect. His clothes did not float up from his body. Chairs did not levitate when he sat in them, although if he carried one into the bathroom and stood on the scale with it, its weight didn't register. There were rules to what was going on. He didn't understand them or care to. His outlook remained optimistic, and he slept through the night. Those were the things that he cared about. So he acknowledges the rules or the lack thereof. Um, but it was important for him to even mention this as minimally as he does. Uh, King has played Scott's condition with playful optimism, but with this chapter, he includes the dangers that come from it with a well-described scene of his weightlessness, not allowing him to gain any traction on the icy snow. And it's this perfect mix of terrifying and humorous at the same time. And then we continue to see the effects of his life becoming increasingly difficult on pages 127 um, to 128. Scott tried to stand, his thighs connected with the table, and he flew forward, knocking over two wine glasses when he put out his hands to stop himself. Deirdre quickly picked up the tablecloth and threw over the spill. Sorry, sorry, Scott said. Don't know my own strength these days. 
He turned as gingerly as a man on roller skates and started toward the back half of the house. No matter how carefully he tried to walk, his steps became leaps. His remaining weight wanted him on the earth. His muscles insisted that he rise above it. His sorry, He overbalanced and had to grab one of the newly installed clamps to keep from going headlong into the hallway. So, again, King being the master of not just uh, character but also description, I don't know what it feels like to start to lose gravity and float and try and fight against this lack of gravity, but I um, I feel like I do now. He's able to really include that now. Um, he's, he's able to anchor me into this world um, and this condition. And then... Uh, he has come to the end of his journey, and though we haven't spent too much time with these characters, their goodbye is lovely, and it's sad. Um, so he writes, I just want to say, Scott stopped, cleared his throat, I want to say that I wish that we had more time. You've been good friends to me. There's no compliment more sincere than that, Dr. Bob said. He was wiping his eyes with a napkin. It's not fair, Missy burst out. It's not goddamn fair. Well, no, Scott agreed. It isn't. But I'm not leaving any kids behind. My ex is happy where she is. There's that. And it's fairer than cancer or Alzheimer's or being a burn victim in a hospital ward. I guess I'd go down in history if anyone talked about it. Um, you know, and, and then they continue... Um, yeah, so they, they, they talk about it, and um, you know he continues to write, Scott thought of how he'd felt running down Hunter's Hill when he'd gotten his second wind and the whole world had gone, so had stood revealed in the unusually hidden glory of ordinary things, the leaden lowering sky, the bunting flapping from the downtown buildings, every precious pebble and cigarette butt and beer can discarded by the side of the road, his own body for once working at top capacity, every cell loaded with oxygen. Elevated, he said at last. Um, you know, I mean, think about this. Think about someone that has accepted where he is and giving back and acknowledging the things by saying, I just want to say that I wish that I had more time. Um, you've been good friends to me. There's an acceptance. There's a longing for more and an acknowledgement that I, you don't want to go, but you're going to accept it. Contrast this with the denial and the pitiful bargaining that comes from most of King's villains in their in their final moments. That's what I love about King. He doesn't celebrate his villains. His vil his villains always wind out um, being these wretched, wretched, craven creatures that that beg and they they plead and they bargain and they 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 just they scream and they're 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 whiny. Not Scott. Not our heroes. They accept things, whether it be Scott, whether it be Larry Underwood, let it, you know, whoever. There's a dignity um, in saying goodbye. And then the theme is distilled in Missy's letter when she describes the change that Scott has had upon them and through him, this town. Specifically, he picked Dee Dee up when she fell. And this is what King is saying that we should do for our neighbors. Nothing any more complicated than that. And what happens when you do, you elevate, you ascend. King is a believer in God. And shouldn't this strike a chord in those who pray that following the teachings of your Lord will allow you to ascend? There's a lot of hate and hypocrisy woven into organized religions. And King cuts through all of that with a very simple message. Do good and you'll be rewarded. 
Be kind to your fellow neighbors and you will ascend. It's that simple. And then the end comes. Dee Dee helps Scott um, through it with a beautiful description along the way. Okay. The night was cold, chilling the sweat on his face, but the air was as sweet and crisp as the first bite of a fall apple. Above him was a half moon and what seemed like a trillion stars. To match the trillion pebbles, just as mysterious that we walk over every day, he thought. Mystery above, mystery below, weight, mass, reality, mystery all around. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. And then King frames it all with his precise attention to detail, chronicling Scott's death with anchors that we can hold on to, right? So he writes on page 144, Oh, he passed his bed. So he's floating up at this point. He passed his bedroom window and saw the lamp still on, casting a yellow stripe on his bed. He could see things on his bureau, watch, comb, little fold of money that he would never touch again. He rose higher and the moonlight was bright enough for him to see some kid's frisbee caught in an angle of the roof, maybe tossed up there before he and Nora had bought the place. That kid could be grown up. Now, he thought, writing in New York or digging ditches in San Francisco or painting in Paris. Mystery, mystery, mystery. Now he caught escaping heat from the house, a thermal, and began rising faster. The town disclosed itself as if from a drone or low-flying plane, the street lamps along Main Street and Castleview like pearls on a string. He could see the Christmas tree that Deirdre had lit over a month ago and which would remain in the town square until the 1st of February. It was cold up here, much colder than on the ground, but that was all right. He let the coverlet go and watched it drop, spreading out as it went, slowing, becoming a parachute, not weightless, but almost. Everyone should have this, he thought, and perhaps at the end, everyone does. Perhaps in their time of dying, Everyone rises. So we might, we might not be able to relate to becoming weightless and floating away, but I mean, especially the sequence where he's passing by his window and looking at the things on his bureau, these little specific watch comb, little fold of money that he's never going to touch again. Like that little, like little things that make us us, that ground us in reality, floating past them, floating beyond them, they will remain in this world as echoes of us, as memorials to us and reminders of us. And we're leaving them behind. Like that's something that we can relate to. Um, so the big theme, so, and that's it. And that's it. He goes up into the sky and he lights off some fireworks and that's really it. It's a, on a plot level, dude is losing weight. It's magic weight loss. He is living in a town that has issues with this married lesbian couple. He does what he can to make his town a better place and accept these women and let go of their bigotry. The town accepts the women. They're happier. The town has healed with his job done. He's able to let go. And he dies. That is elevation. 
It's as simple as that. It's as complicated as that. Um, and the big themes here, there's a couple. The first is that it's really, as I stated, after reading what I just read, can't you see why I thought, do we have to worry about Stephen King? Because it's about mortality and time. Um, you know, King is able to tackle the bigger concepts of, of time and our perception of it, whether it be on page, um, you know, 18, where he, 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 uh, he reads or he writes, you could feel weight. Yes. When you weren't, when you were carrying too much, it made you feel plotty, but it wasn't it like time, basically just a human construct, hands on a clock, numbers on a bathroom scale. Weren't they only ways of trying to measure invisible forces that had visible effects? A feeble effort to corral some greater reality beyond what mere humans thought of as reality. Like, so yes, it is a story as simple as the one I described, but it allows him to be able to, con uh, to tackle way bigger concepts than just the surface level plot that he, uh, that he writes of in this book. And then um, we get on page 88, I'm sorry for just reading passages, but they're beautiful passages, and I think that they are worth reading, and they're going to really reinforce what, what I'm arguing here. Um, Route 117 made a double curve, then ran straight beside Bowie Stream, babbling and chuckling along in its shallow stony bed. Scott thought it had never sounded better. The misty air he was pulling deep into his lungs had never tasted better. The big pines crowded down on the other side of the road had never looked better. He could smell them, tangy and bright and somehow green. Every breath seemed deeper than the last, and he kept having to rein himself in. I am so glad to be alive on this day, he thought. Like, unlike Thinner... Scott has accepted the journey of this mortality and he appreciates the moments that he has. I am so glad to be alive on this day, he thinks, knowing that at some point he will not be alive. It doesn't get in the way of him living for the moment. There is such beauty in his acceptance of life, knowing that his end is coming and the appreciation that he has. And we see this with people that I don't understand if I was given an end date, my life would be misery. It's a sad truth that I know about myself that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to find the beauty. Maybe I would, I don't know, but I just don't think that I would. And so I'm so inspired by people that are able to find the beauty. And so even if it is a fictional character like Scott to, to see life for like, even that, that description where there's like a butt and a beer can and like pebbles, like, how magical that is to him, the, the, the precision of that, uh, that, that, that these are the details of this world in which he is existing, that he has in this moment of time existed in. He will never exist again. He never existed before, but for this one moment in time, in the eons that this universe will exist before it, all energy just ends. He existed in a blink of an eye, and there's a beauty to that. Even in its meaninglessness, there's meaning to it. Um, it's powerful, and King touches upon all of this in such a short time. And then um, on page 97, 
he writes, um, sorry, on page 96, the rain seemed to hesitate for a moment. Time enough for Scott to think that was going to hold off until the race was over. And then it came in full force torrent, driving the spectators back under the awnings and into the doorways. Visibility dropped to 20%, then to 10, then to almost zero. Scott thought the cold rain felt more than delicious, closer to divine. He got by one runner, then another. The second was the former leader, the one that Deirdre had passed. He had slowed down to a walk, splashing along the gushing street with his head down, his hands on his hips, and his sopping shirt plastered to his body. Ahead, through a gray curtain of rain, Scott saw the red shirt. He thought he had just enough gas left in the tank to go by her, but the race might be over before he could. The traffic light at the end of Main Street had disappeared, so had the tin bridge, tin bridge and the yellow tape across, it, across its near end. It was just him and Macomb now, both of them running blind through the deluge, and Scott had never been happier in his life. Only happiness was too mild. Here, as he explored the farthest limits of his stamina, was a new world. Everything leads to this, he thought, to this elevation. If it's how dying feels, everyone should be glad to go. Ah! Oh my God! You know, I mean, so going back, going back to what I said about Pet Cemetery being nothing when death means nothing but horror. It's the most horrific thing ever in life because it's the antithesis of life and it's coming for you and it is a malicious entity that ha that has a personality. It is Oz, the great and terrible, and it's coming for you. It is a thing that wants to devour you and it wants to make a mockery of your life and your love and your legacy and it's going to rip you apart. Okay? That's what it is. Here, that's not it. That's not it. There's beauty in it. There, there, there is a beauty in it because it makes you appreciate the things that you have now. And then, um, you know, we do get, you know, it's not great. It's not awesome. You know, we're not saying woohoo. You know, I mean, there's little things like him saying goodbye um, to, to Bill the cat. Um, you know, so like he, he, he's making plans to, to, to give up his cat, his best friend because he knows that he's dying and he has to, that's, that's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking, you know, to having to, to let go of your friend at this point, like the cat can't go near him because of his condition. And that's tragic in of itself. And, um, that's a little wrinkle in this story that it, it makes it very, very bittersweet. And when he writes, Scott hung up after having made plans to take care of, um, of having someone take care of Bill Decat, um, after he has passed, Scott hung up thought about what giving things away meant, especially things that were also valued friends, and closed his eyes. You know, so there is deep tragedy and sadness here along with it, just like life itself. And then Scott's refusal of going to a clinic and his friend's acceptance of this decision, you know, it feels less of a supernatural uh, condition and more like a cancer patient refusing to explore the options and just to accept the hand that they were dealt. Um, and then we have, okay, and I, I read this one part, and then we have page 146, okay, and it's beautiful. It's the final page, it's, it's the final section, and King writes, this is after Scott has gone off into the heavens 
and he has his flint and tinder and he is going to ignite the fireworks and from the perspective of his friends below, above, they see brilliant fire burst high above them, reds and yellows and greens. There was a pause, then came a perfect fury of gold, a shimmering waterfall that rained down and rained down and rained down as if it would never end. Deirdre took Missy's hand. Dr. Bob took Myra's hand. They watched until the last golden sparks went out and the night was dark again. Somewhere high above them, Scott Carey continued to gain elevation, rising above the earth's mortal grip with his face turned towards the stars. That is a beautiful ending. It's a beautiful ending for this character. It's a beautiful ending for this book. So not only... And that's just one of the themes, okay? Mortality, acceptance of mortality, passing of time, but also very much is a book um, about intolerance in the modern age. Now, guys, this is the part, I'll be honest, now that I'm an hour and a half into the podcast, um, I saved this part for the very, very end purposefully because I know, I know that this is the part where I frustrate, alienate, or altogether lose listeners for quote-unquote getting political. Now, what I understand on some level is the listeners who just want their entertainment to be pure escapism, you know. But I gotta be honest, like, there's no way to read this book. There's no way to talk about this book without talking about the world in which it was written. Context is everything. And the context is that the political climate and the contentious culture that has taken over not just our country but the world inspired King to write this book. It's, it's the truth. Like, you can't say no. It's not. The, it's the truth. Um, and, I, and honestly, guys, like, there, there is no escaping. Like, there is no, like, everything is inspired by something. I mean, I'm going to take this opportunity right now to talk a little bit about Stan Lee. Um, Stan Lieber, the great Stan Lieber, who just passed away at the age of 95. Those of you who don't know, how do you not know? Stan Lee was basically the ambassador of comics. He, uh, co-creator of Spider-Man, co-creator of the Fantastic Four, co-creator of Black Panther, co-creator of the X-Men, um, you know, goes on and on and on, his accomplishments. He has created modern mythology that's going to extend and continue far past my life, your life, the life of your children, life of your children's children. Like, this, this, is, this is why it's modern mythology. Like, it's, these are characters that are as recognizable as Santa Claus in some places. Jesus, like, kids know who Spider-Man is. Um, so the, the, the story of Peter Parker, the story of the morality of Peter Parker, these are going to resound throughout time, right? So like he has created myths and fables and, um, through that, because of the world that he was living in the time, they helped shape the stories being told, whether it's the X-Men and facing, you know, accepting diversity in a time when there was no acceptance. So you could... You know, the fictional world was mutants, but you could approach it if you were gay or you were Puerto Rican or you were black or if you were other in any way. You could see your story being told. And the one that stands out the most is Black Panther. Like, in the 1960s, when Rosa Parks was fighting for her seat on a bus and Martin Luther King was trying to acknowledge that, hey, you know, I'm black. I, I, I have rights, too. And people 
didn't agree with that. Like that's, that's, I still don't understand how people don't understand that. Um, in this age, when civil rights were so explosive, uh, Stanley co-creates a character who is a superhero genius that hails from the most scientific, technologi technologically advanced country on the planet that is smack dab in the middle of Africa, and his name is the Black Panther. That is a statement. That is a ballsy move that he is making, Okay. He is putting, he's drawing a line in the sand. Stan Lee, yes, he is creating stories for kids that can be accessed by adults, but he is telling a story of superheroes, right? And, and fantasy and imagination, but rooted deeply in our world because he wanted to help change this world for the better. It's one of his missions. If you read any of Stan's soapboxes, if you read any of the speeches that he gave to colleges, he wanted a better world. He wanted to fight against intolerance. You want to fight for diversity, always. So when you watch Spider-Man, when you read Spider-Man, when you read X-Men, when you read Black Panther, you watch Black Panther, and you get upset because you feel as there is some sort of social justice warrior propaganda occurring. It's built in. It is the point. It's to present a better world and fight for it. That's the point. It's the point. It's not saying that you're bad just saying that we want a better world. I want a better world for my daughter. My daughter being born is going to have a much different experience than me being a guy and the life that I have had. Things are going to be easier for me in many, many ways. That's going to be easy for her. And still, we are luckier than those, um, than, uh, of, than many other people. And I just want anyone that isn't me to have the same rights and the same opportunities that I have. It's that simple. It's that simple. And that's what Stan Lee fought for. That's what Stephen King wants, right? So those of you who um, follow Stephen King on Twitter, it's not going to come as a surprise that he writes a book like this in this day and age. The struggle of Missy and Deirdre is born out of our weaponized intolerance and the fact that this type of dehumanization towards um, the other has been authenticated over the last few years. You know, if you are not white, it's a dangerous time. It's a very, very dangerous time. Um, and if you are not straight, it's a very, very dangerous time. And King tackles this lightly but profoundly in this book. And he gets right to it. And after learning about Missy and Deirdre's restaurant woes, Scott immediately confronts some bigots after hearing them make a homophobic joke. King is saying that Scott's decision to confront the intolerance is what we need to do. And for anyone, like I said, that follows him on Twitter, this, is, this isn't a shock. And he distills it to a wonderful and quick conversation and arms all of us with a retort that would serve us well if we ever found ourselves in a similar situation. Like if I actually had the guts to confront people, if I overheard them, I don't, I don't. I don't have the guts. That's what's wrong with me um, in situations like this. Um, but this gives me hope because it gives me something to say. So when he confronts them, um, you know, uh, you know, he says, uh, you know, that was a shitty thing to say. And he says, those women live just up the road from me. They're okay. Um, and the guy says, were you in this conversation? No, but. 
Right, so butt out. And Scott says, but I had to listen to it. It's so true. It's like, yes, you are having a conversation. And yes, you are just stating your opinion. And yes, you might think that you have a right to just state your opinion. But you also have to understand that what you say, I have to hear. And what you are saying, are you making this world a better place or a worse place? You know, conversations like this, it's like the secondhand smoke um, of society, right? Um, and then many people think that bigotry and tolerance, it's rampant only in the South, but King tells you here that it exists everywhere. And the farther north you get, the closer you get to dangerous bigotry. You know, Maine has a very, very deep conservative streak to it, and King touches upon it here. And the interesting thing is that King provides a lot of nuance to this tale. Like, Deidre is not presented as a likable figure. She's not some saint who rises above it or goes high. She's judgy. She's elitist. She's angry. She's a little vindictive. She's so proud that when she's about to lose her business due to soft, passive, aggressive bigotry, when someone stands up for her and gives her business, she gets angry at that person. While you empathize with her, you don't have to like her. That's a bold choice. And it allows to draw in those of a more um, conservative viewpoint, as if to lend credence to their argument. You know, I don't think that that's truly the case. <laughs> but for anyone that does think that there is an elitism within liberalism, um, I, I think that Deidre kind of serves as a lightning rod for that. Um, and I think that it allows King to be able to lure people in and, and, and do what Scott is doing and saying, listen, this is what you think. It's what you think. This is what you see. Okay. But just get to know this person a little bit better. Maybe it's not exactly what you're seeing. There is a human inside that has hopes and dreams and fears, just like you do. And, we have probably more in common than you would think. Um, and there's more nuance here by making Deirdre kind of icy and frosty and at first unlikable. This is more nuanced than Joe Hill gives in Loaded in his Strange Weather Collection. And I love Loaded, don't get me wrong. But Joe, like Joe Hill just goes for the jugular and he doesn't care about presentation or um, fair-mindedness, he, he gives a, a deep, deep condemnation on gun culture, right? Um, there is no balanced side. There is no sympathetic viewpoint for gun culture. Um, whereas, you know, through the presentation of Deirdre here as unlikable, um, you know, it, it, it presents more nuance than, than Joe Hill does um, with a very similar... You know, the, both father and son are touching upon hot button topics that are relevant to our lives and society right now. Um, but they both approach it. Um, they both approach it deeply, but they do approach both um, very, very differently. One is much more optimistic and humanistic, um, and the other is just anger. It is a fiery tornado. Um, and both are definitely worth the read. And Deirdre's goal to win the turkey trot so that she can be the, uh, the one to light the town's Christmas tree, um, it's a wonderful middle finger to the town. Um, and it's, it's, it's great because it's also King, in a way, 
um, pulling in all of that uh, um, conservative outrage that seems to pop up at this time of year, um, you know, whether it be like a Starbucks cup or, you know, the fact that, you know, I, like the whole Merry Christmas argument, what, like when people, <laughs> and people get upset when you say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, like the, the fact that a lesbian is going to light, a married lesbian is going to light the Christmas tree, that it's, it's, it's so specific and it, it kind of speaks to the, the, that belief that there is an attack on this, these Christmas values. Um, so I, I did enjoy that. Um, and then just some random notes and quotes that I want to conclude with. Uh, I want to, as I record this, it's getting a little bit late and I haven't seen my wife all day and I want to go uh, hang out with her a little bit before bed. And uh, But anyway, um, some random notes. It's not about winning, believe me. As I came out of his mouth, Scott remembered a college teacher once remarking that when someone added, believe me, to a sentence, you should be aware. I just, I love that. Um, I just love these little moments of truth that King gives. And then on page 131, he writes, May I say something before we go? Myra asked. Of course, Scott said, but he wished she wouldn't. He wished they would just leave. He thought he had discovered one of life's great truths and one he could have done without. The only thing harder than saying goodbye to yourself a pound at a time was saying goodbye to your friends. Ugh. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, there's really, guys, it's a beautiful book. And if I've driven you nuts over the last 10 minutes talking about the political aspect of this, um, yes, this is born out of politics, but politics is baked into our society baked into our everyday culture. It's baked into who we are as human beings because um, the things that we believe in and the things that drive us and our morals are reflected in our politics. So politics are who we are. Um, so I know that there's a lot of frustration about people talking about politics all the time and how inescapable it is. But really, that's life. That's always been life. That's like you read Dante's Inferno. It's yeah, Dante's going through hell, right? Um, but it's all political. Like everyone that he encounters in, in the various levels of, of hell, uh, there are, it's all commentary on politics. Like that's, that's what fiction is. It's a, it's a representation and a, and, and a way for the, the author to understand and comment upon the world in which he or she is currently existing. And politics is a driving factor and always been a driving factor because it can run afoul and run up against people's beliefs. So even if you, you know, run a little bit um, to the right of Stephen King, I still believe that you can get a lot out of Elevation because it's all about how to be human and how to be a good human. That's really what it comes down to and enjoy the life that you have. Uh, so guys, we have a couple kingisms. One is magic weight loss, which I've already, you know, discussed. It's, um, we've seen in thinner, uh, stationary bike is another example, different kind of weight loss. It's on a bike, but the idea of losing weight through supernatural means is definitely true to stationary bike. Um, and then we have Easter eggs. I mean, Castle Rock, everything having to do with Castle Rock, Castle View, Bannerman Road, um, all of that. Uh, suicide stairs from uh, Gwendy's button box. All of that is um, 
baked within this because this is a Castle Rock story. Um, another Easter egg is Inside View, uh, the tabloid publication um, most famous from the Night Flyer, which is specifically referenced. Um, Scott mentions the Night Flyer itself, which I loved because, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the Night Flyer, the short story, and the late, great Miguel Ferrer starring uh, direct-to-DVD uh, video. And then we have uh, number 19. The number 19 is the number assigned to Deirdre in her marathon. You know, as we all know, number 19 has a lot of significance in the world of Stephen King. So, guys... Oh, I almost completely forgot to mention this. Um, as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, yo, this sounds and reads so similarly to his son's best short story, which still, to me, it's not just Joe Hill's best short story. It's my favorite short story I've ever read and one of my favorite pieces of fiction ever written, um, Joe Hill's pop art. Um, it dabbles with very similar themes and plot points. Um, but I think that I still stand by Joe Hill does it better. Um, so if you feel inspired with elevation, then do yourself a favor, go out and get 20th century ghosts and read pop art, read all of 20th century ghosts, because it's the finest collection of short stories that I have read in a long, long time and includes pop art which is, it's beautiful. I mean, there, I, I cannot read pop art without crying. I can't even think about pop art without crying. Uh, and it's, um, like I said, very similar, very, very similar. It's about uh, hope. It's about inspiration. It's about being the best you can, inspiring others, giving back to this world uh, that you live in. Um, and it's about ascending. It's about elevation. It's about beauty. It's about truth. It's about humanity. Um, and there's a lightness to it um, as well in many ways. So check out Pop Art by Joe Hill, Stephen King's son. It's a great companion piece to Elevation. That's it. That's all I got for this episode. Elevation, it's worth it. Haunting of Hill House, it's worth it. Pet Cemetery, not so much. Guys, I have enjoyed uh, rambling on for um, this hour and a half. Um, I don't know what my next episode is going to be, but there will be another episode. Um... And if I don't talk to you guys before the uh, before the new year, I don't know if it's going to be that long, but just in case it isn't, uh, I do hope that everyone has a, um, regardless of, of what you celebrate or don't celebrate, I, I do hope that everyone has a, a wonderful holiday season. Um, if it's celebratory and it's something that you know you pay respects to, then I hope you get something out of it. At the very least, I hope that you spend time with friends and family and feel good um, and give yourself some time to, to feel good. And I hope that you all curl up with a book, um, whether it be ele Elevation or something else. Just give some time to yourself. And um, so I'll see you whenever I next see you. So may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.